good evening. My name is Duke Bendix. I'm here on staff as well, and it's so good to be with you once again. Um, we've been looking kind of on a, for a number of Wednesdays now and for a number yet to come, we're going to be cons- continuing to consider what it means to know God. And uh, I trust that uh, this, is, this is priming a pump in you. I'm reminded of a story years ago uh, uh, about most of you would never have seen a hand pump like they used to have on farms. But uh, what you used to have to do is you'd pump the water, but before you could pump the water, you'd have to pour primer in. And what the primer would do is the pumps, as they were originally made, were, they had leather seals and the water that you poured in would moisten that leather it would swell up and create a vacuum and that's what would that's what would allow the pumping well i'm hoping you're getting your leathers wet that the primer is going in and something is beginning to get drawn out after weeks of pastor jim pastor david last week did a masterful job talking about uh knowing jesus christ as savior And uh, he did a wonderful job uh, looking at uh, Naaman, the leper, the Syrian general. But I want to get underway this evening by talking about, we're going to be looking at Christ as Lord. And this whole business of knowing God is so very, very important. Westminster Shorter Catechism asks, what is the chief end of man? What are we really about? What is God's purpose and what is this whole creation um, design and, and scheme about? What is the chief end of man? And they answer the question to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Our reason for knowing God is so that we can glorify him and enjoy him. The thought of enjoying God, I hope, is beginning to be something that that sinks down in our hearts and begins to kind of grow up like a, a young plant where we begin to get a taste for what it is to know him. John Piper kind of edits it a little bit and he says, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. We want to be people who know God in a way that allows us to enjoy him. And for some of us, that may mean asking him, God, what does that even mean? We have such a functional approach to our relationship with God. We look at God in terms of what it is that he gives us, provides for us, what it is that he's done, the music that we sang tonight of of just saying, Lord, thank you that you're the God who knows me and who's been merciful to me and who will continue to be that, that way toward us. Well, last week, as I, I, I noted earlier, Pastor David Hermes talked about knowing Jesus Christ as Savior, knowing God as Savior. And he likened Jesus' saving work to the work that was done for this Syrian general who had leprosy. And he, he, was, he came to the prophet Elisha, and Elisha didn't even come out and say, he just told him to go through his servant, go and dunk in the, in the Jordan River seven times and you'll be cleansed. And of course... Uh, all of the things that he had to sort through to get to that and to resolve to do that because he was offended at the fact that he was being asked to do the things he was asked to do. And David did a masterful job in drawing out 
the, the reality that our, the salvation we experience in Christ is contingent upon us embracing what he has for us and entering into it by faith. He made the distinction between lordship and salvation, between authority and forgiveness by stating that forgiveness is a function of God's authority. God's mercy works upon the basis of what Jesus did on the cross on our behalf. Well, tonight, I want to look at lordship. What does it mean to, to say Jesus is Lord? It's a huge topic. It's one of the things that characterize Christians. We find it repeatedly stated in the New Testament. It was one of the things that people literally died for that confession. It is that important. Uh, the, the reason that they died is because in the Roman Empire, there was only one Lord and ruler, and that was the emperor. And to say Jesus is Lord was to say there is a greater Lord than the emperor. And for that, people paid with their lives. So what does Jesus is Lord describe? And most importantly, how are, to we, how are we to live in the light of that declaration? I just want to make some initial remarks about attributes that are revealed through the lordship of Jesus Christ, characteristics of God's nature that are revealed in the term lordship. The first is his sovereignty, the second his authority, and the third is victory. And I'm not going to take a long time on any of these, but it's important for us to know, and, and this is something that's um, kind of characteristic of my emphasis uh, in, the, in what I try to bring to people when I minister and that is that when we deal in concepts, I love theology because it, it takes concepts and ideas and it brings them down and it opens up the scripture with a view of saying, here's what's being unfolded. Here's what God is disclosing about himself. And of course, to, to engage with those things, it's not that we have to be particularly intelligent. We just have to use something that that sometimes when we're not at work, we don't particularly want to use, and that's our minds. We know we get paid to use our minds at work, and so we're sharp and to the point. But boy, after that, it's just, I just don't want to think much. Well, the truth of it is, is that our minds are one of the most important things we have for ascending into the presence of God. And we don't oftentimes think of thinking as being a means for entering into God's presence. But I would go so far as to say there's been a lot more, a lot more paper written on, a lot more ink spent on how we can use our minds to enter into God's presence. And so one of the things you'll find me emphasizing, and it's why I'm always a little reticent, because I, I really want to call us to engage with what God shows us about himself and engage it with our minds, how we, how we think about it. Not that it needs to be abstract or, or hard to get a hold of, but the truth of it is... <clears throat> is that these concepts, these, these notions of, of God's sovereignty, of God's authority, of God's victory, that these attributes that are revealed in, under the heading of lordship give perspective for us that we need to be able to draw from on a regular and consistent basis. They help us to live life. We need altitude. How many of you know we need altitude? 
We need to get up above what we normally are engaged with. We need to get, we need to rise above. And I think what we do in our, in, in this day and age, and particularly maybe in a, in a church like ours that really emphasizes the Holy Spirit, is sometimes we tend to just wait on the winds of the Spirit to lift us up. And here's where I want to challenge us. Our minds are a tool for elevating our perspective. That God gives us an understanding of what he's done so that we can consider these things, so that we can ponder these things, so that we can understand these things, so that we can lay hold upon them when we need them and apply them to our circumstance and get elevation. And this is something that we, that we, have, to, we have to work at. We must be careful not to be passive and just wait for the wind of the Spirit. We need to not be passive and just wait till, well, I can crawl into worship on Wednesday night and I can begin to get a little elevation. I can get some altitude. You know, God forbid that Tiffany doesn't have altitude that night herself, you know. I mean, you know, in other words, we need to be able to be people who find altitude in all of the ways the Holy Spirit wants to minister that to us. We are to be renewed in our minds and our thinking. Scripture clearly points to that. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. We're transformed by the renewing of what? Our mind, how we think. And, and, and we, we, we need to understand that this is something we embrace. So very quickly, let's go through these three attributes that are revealed through the term Lord, that Jesus is Lord. First is sovereignty. Jesus is Lord. He is sovereign over all things. This is one of my favorite passages in all of the Bible. Colossians 1.15. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things, say that, all things, all things, including my bad situation, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and, and in him all things hold together, including my bad situation. And he is the head of the body, the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now there, are a, there is an absolute plethora of wonderful truths about Christ in that passage. Any one of which you could just spend some time, close your eyes, think back, and say all things were created through him. Now, what that does is that begins to give the truth of the fact that we live in a world that is stable, it is being superintended over, it is being cared over, and it is heading somewhere on purpose, and nothing can thwart that, including my bad circumstance. In fact, my bad circumstance or my difficulty or what I need to get elevation about or altitude about has to, is, fits into this grand reality of what Christ has done. But we, for our part, have to bring it there. And most of the time, what we, when we need to bring it the most, we feel like doing so the least. And that's why our minds are important. 
That's why God gave us a Bible. That's why your pastor says, senior pastor says, read your Bible every day. Well, why does he say that? Because there's something, not just because that, that, that does something in and of itself, but rather it gives you something you can go to, you can draw from, you can, as it were, use, it becomes primer to get something that's able to draw up life in your situation. God is sovereign. Jesus Christ is Lord, and his lordship grounds us. It gives us a firm foundation to build on. Second thing is authority. Jesus is Lord. He is the ruler of all things. Philippians 3, 9 through 10. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. Matthew 28, 18. Jesus says this. Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. All of the power to rule, all of the power to command... All of the power to establish rests in Jesus Christ. And when we say Jesus Christ is Lord, we are saying or we are affirming, Lord, all authority is in you. And I'm going to make some application of this in a few moments, so just bear with me. I'm resisting the temptation to dive into what I want to get to later. But suffice it to say, all things are designed to work best when they work in conformity with the God's will. All things are designed to work best when they work in conformity to the will of God. We live in a world that is, out, that is disjointed, broken, because very little works in conformity with the way it was designed. Everything from relationships to our bodies to our thinking to so many, many other things, they're not, being, they're not being brought under the authority of God. They're not being lined up with the way God designed them to be. Submitting to God's will, aligning choices, words, and actions is righteousness. We hear the word righteousness used and sometimes we think of righteousness as having to do only with our standing before God. I'm righteous in Christ before God. Righteousness in its most basic sense is when things are aligned, when my choices, my words, and my actions line up with God's authority. Then I am living in righteousness. Ordering our lives under his rule is what seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. That's what it's pointing to. Seek first the kingdom of God. Get your life lined up under the authority of Christ's lordship. Another fun word being presented by... Pastor Duke. <laughs> See, these are the things, though, that we have to remind us of. They're not, they're not particularly uh, edifying in their first hearing because what we have to do sometimes is simply be, we have, to, we have to reaffirm the fact of, okay, this is what my life is to be about. And, and, and God gives us glimpses of that when he gives us a sense of our destiny, of, of how much he loves us. 
but he also comes back and he cares enough about us and loves us enough to be able to say to us, but you have to be lined up with how I intend it to be lined up with. I love you enough to require that of you. In fact, we're going to get into it in a moment, but I love you so much that I want you to experience all that I have. And the only way you can do that is when you're aligned properly with his will and his purpose. And then the uh, the third characteristic here is victory. Jesus is Lord. He is the victorious king. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood. And the name of that of which he is called is the word of God. From his mouth comes a sharp sword and with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has the name written King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 1 Corinthians 15 says he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Folks, this is, what I've just read is just a touch of what is the basis of our hope. We are looking forward to something that is already established. It is already complete. There is, this, is the, this is the victor being described in Revelations that is, that is the victor already. And he's coming to establish that victory fully in this world. And this is something that, here again, it requires us... Well, let me, let me read something, that I, a note that I wrote to myself in, in, in regard to this. That, that biblical hope is established on reality, not on wishful thinking. Hope is not about, I wonder if it'll happen. Hope is a faith reaching out and touching something that is already complete. And that completion we have tasted in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have got, what what Jesus did when the tomb was emptied is he, he, he opened a window, he opened a portal into this reality of a completed kingdom that is going to come and make full entrance into this world, being brought about by the victorious king coming on his return and establishing in the earth the full expanse and outworking of God's eternal design. And for our part, we wait in anticipation of that. We live in the light of a dawning day. There is a dawning that is breaking open and we are to be the people who see that, who draw from that, who find encouragement and comfort in that because hope is not just something that we knock on wood and wish for. It's a reality that is coming our way and that we are to lay hold upon and live in. Focusing on Jesus Christ as Lord pulls our attention off our circumstances, as I've said, and it gives us a point of reference beyond ourselves. 
We often think of God's love in terms of him coming into our situation to deliver us, to minister. He does, and he always will. He's faithful to do that. But that doesn't excuse us from the responsibility and the discipline to change our focus ourselves. Sometimes, and, and, and here again, I'll, one of the things God does is he exercises us. We, Pastor Jim talked about the discipline of the father, and he was talking about how discipline is associated with punishment and correction. But the thing that I always like to remind people of is that how many of you guys ever went out for football? Well, all three of us. Well, they, they did a thing that when you went out for football, ladies, they would do a thing. They'd have two practices a day in August. And at the last of the end of the second practice, the coach would say to the whole team, line up on the 50-yard line. And everybody knew exactly what was going to happen then. He was going to have us run wind sprints. And he would start with the slow guys and work to the fast guys, and they would run through this routine until people were throwing up and gasping for air. And it was now that is discipline because what the coach, the coach wasn't mad at the team. He was, he was wanting to help them get something beyond what they currently had. He was exercising them and developing something in their psyche that could draw from something when they thought they were at the end of themselves. The Father disciplines us because he wants us to be able to draw from something beyond ourselves. See, he, he's not above. So, so be careful when we look at every situation, every difficulty, and think, well, this is surely something God wants to, wants to step into the midst of my situation and draw me out of. It may be that he wants you to begin to use the faculties of your thinking and your focus, remind yourself of the truth, speak truth about your situation, reach up and affirm the fact that Jesus Christ is Lord, he is sovereign, he has all authority, and he is the victorious king and you find yourself getting elevated and above the situation. You will know the truth and the truth will what? That's right. And I mean, the point is, is that the truth doesn't always come blowing in through the window, the warmth with a smelling fragrance of, of spring flowers, the Holy Spirit sitting down, poor thing. May I lift you out? As one teacher said years ago, we have sometimes we think of God as our shield and our butler. And Okay, real quick. I want to look at two responses to Christ's lordship and kind of get practical here that are required of us. The first is confession. And the second is obedience. Lordship becomes a living reality in our lives as we practice both of these things. Confession. I'm not talking about when you messed up and you confess. That's, 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 that is a kind of confession. No, I'm talking about when you know the truth and you begin to affirm it. You begin to declare it. You begin to, to speak it. That's one thing we need to do. The other is we need to be obedient. Neither are optional. They are practices that characterize us as saints, as devout followers of Jesus Christ. 
and that further our growth in becoming saints. First of all is confession, Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. How many of you ever heard that verse? Nearly everyone here. Okay. The reason is, is because that is a favorite and primary verse when we come to know Jesus Christ. We are taught that if we believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus from the dead and we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, we will be saved. This is my early understanding. This is when I this had to have been one of the first verses that I probably was ever encountered with. When we're coming to Christ, it's all of us probably heard it. But it, our early understanding was something along these lines. I had faith in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. I believed that. I had come to that by virtue of the Spirit of God working that in me and bringing a revelation of that. Believing that God raised him from the dead meant that he had died. And if he had died, I knew that he had died for my wrongdoing. He'd paid a penalty for me. And the fact that God raised him from the dead meant that he didn't have any sin. He took my sin on him. And when he came forth from the tomb and was raised from the dead... I acknowledge Jesus is Lord. He is really great. Look what he has done. He is awesome. And that's how I understood confessing that Jesus is Lord. I, that, was, that was where I was. His being raised was confirmation that his death was for my sin. This Jesus, this Savior who had won a great victory for me is clearly Lord. He's sovereign, he's victorious, and I declared him such by my confession. My confession was an affirmation that what I believed in my heart had happened for me. I was forgiven, I was accepted by God, and I was now able to live differently. Now, if you've never gone through that process, or you've never, not process, but if you've never come to that kind of a realization then don't leave tonight without asking someone to open this, pray with you and open this up. Because this is the revelation of God having died for you. And this is how we enter into the salvation that he has. But an integral part of that is our confession. Now, I want to suggest that confession should not stop with conversion. Speaking with my mouth what I believe in my heart has a focusing effect upon my thoughts and actions. There's a principle laid out in James, the third chapter. If we put bits in the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole body as well. Look at ships also. Though they are large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Now he goes on to talk about ruling. James goes on. His point is to talk about ruling the tongue. My point here tonight is to say there's a principle here. How I use my tongue, what I use my words to declare, steers me. Just like a rudder of a ship. I can be steered by what I affirm, by what I declare and confess as being true. Confession, declaration of our lips directs our attention toward the truth we, we need to stand on. 
I used to say it this way to the church that I pastored up in Pennsylvania. Something happens in my head when my ears hear my mouth declaring the truth of God's word. Something happens in my mind when my ears hear my mouth declaring the truth of God. We need to confess to declare God's word so as to hear and to hold the truth. So here again, we're talking about something I do. This is not passive. This is active. This is something I resolve, I determine to do. This is something I train myself to do. It's something God will allow circumstances to come into your life for him to train you to do these kinds of things. And we need to be men and women who have a word to declare over our situation. And as we have a word to declare over our situation that provides elevation and faith, guess what? You're going to have a word to declare to someone else when they come. And one of the things with some of our prayer, the folks who do prayer with other people, what are you standing on? How do I agree with you in prayer? You know, how do we join with you in your faith? Are you declaring something of God's word that you are standing on? So confession and speaking has a has a has a, a directional effect in our life and we need to be we need to be investing or we need to be learning how to do that, how to practice that. I wrote down here just close your eyes for a moment. And let, let me read this to you, same passage I read earlier, with, but I changed the wording just slightly. For you have created all things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through you and for you. And you are before all things. And in you, all things hold together. And you are the head of the body, the church. You are the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything you, Lord, might be preeminent. For in you all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now, my point is, that allows... Now I'm not just reading words on a page. I'm declaring something that the words on the page tell me is true, but I'm speaking it in a way that gets me engaged with how I can, how I can walk in that, how I can focus on that in such a way that it has a redirecting orientation, a redirecting effect on my mind. And when my mind goes in that direction, so often aspect, other aspects of my soul follow along. That's not a cure-all. I'm not saying if we just got our thinking right, everything else would be right. No, there's things that need to be healed and fixed and repaired in our souls that we can't overcome with, with just our own man, mind. But I think we live in a day where the using our minds in this kind of a disciplined way to focus and apply the truth to our lives, I think sometimes gets overlooked. I don't think we're called up to it maybe in the way that, we, that, that I'm doing here tonight. And I just want to commend it to you for your consideration. The second thing is obedience. Confession and obedience. How we engage with the Lordship of Christ. Now, I said as a new believer, my confession was right. Jesus was Lord. But I quickly became apparent that there was a battle going on. Where Jesus was leading and what he wanted was strongly opposed by nearly everything in me. I had a problem. Jesus thought he was God. 
And this is the problem that we all run into, I, I trust, well, maybe only one or two of us, but that we run into, we've run into when we begin the process of bringing our life under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. When we begin to bring our life into a place of obedience. Scripture bore, bore this out. I'd never, I, until I was doing my study for this, I'd never, this scripture had never caught my mind, but this, this is interesting. John, the third chapter, the 26th verse. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, what you have to understand here is Jesus isn't, giving with one hand and taking away with the other, he's saying, oh no, I can have eternal life, but if I refuse to live in obedience to God, the life that that can open up to me will never be opened up. Will it not be opened up because God's going to punish me? No, no, no. I'm out of position. I'm out of alignment. I'm not where, I'm not under the spout where the glory comes out. I mean, you you know, call it what you will, but when we're not aligned properly, the life that could be ours is denied us. And this is something that's kind of works as a little bit of a measure. If, If I'm not experiencing the life of God, I know I'm saved. I know the eternal life of God is is in me, but I'm not experiencing the reality of that. Is it possible I need to go back and find out, am I walking in obedience in the ways that Christ would have me walk? Is there anything that I missed? Then there's always this favorite passage of all of ours on the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, uh, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Salvation, salvation cuts in two directions all the time. We are saved out of and we are saved into. We are saved out of what we were, the bondage of death, our subjection to slavery, all of the things that we associated that we associate with our life before Christ. But God brings us up out of that so he can bring us into the fullness of what he has appointed for us, which is the fulfillment of our salvation. Salvation isn't just getting forgiven and drawn out of your mess. Salvation is the process of coming into all that God has for you. Does that make sense? And that's what Jesus is saying. If, If a person believes in me, they'll have eternal life. But if they don't obey me, they're not, they're, they're, they're going to remain under God's wrath. They're going to remain under the judgment of God as it is presently operating in this world today. So we have a responsibility to to, to come and to say, Lord, how do we live in in this manner under your authority? And I I just say responding to Christ's authority comes down to obedience. Faith and obedience are two sides of the same coin in Scripture. I love this in Hebrews, the third chapter, the 18th and 19th verse. It says this, 
This is the Hebrew writer of Hebrews talking about the people in, in the wilderness in Israel, the Israelites in the wilderness. And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? Next verse. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Obedience and faith are two sides of the same coin. We cannot say we're walking in faith if we're openly walking in disobedience. That just Hebrews says that's what kept people out of the promised land. Jesus said if you're living that way, you're not going to enter into the life that I have for you. Faith and obedience are joined in this sense. See, now, one of the reasons I was saying earlier that God wants to discipline, to use discipline to train us in obedience. Jesus, it says in another place in Hebrews 5, it says, it says, Jesus learned obedience by the things he suffered. Now, he was, he, what he was saying is obedience. We learn to be trained in obedience by pressing through the obstacles that would resist us in our obedience. And sometimes that's painful. We learn obedience by the things we suffer. Then there's the Duke Bendix interpretation of that. I learned obedience by the things I suffered. I disobeyed and I suffered. So I learned to obey. <laughs> I don't want to go back to that again. You with me? Anybody else here in that uh, principle of learning that verse? That's not what that verse is talking about, but that's what he was that's how I took it. And the thing we want to be is we want to be people who come back because, see, when God trains us to obey, then he can come along and give us something that we're hearing by faith. And now we have the discipline to say, that is, that's not just crazy. That goes against everything I would normally do. But you know what? I believe I need to obey that word. Never will forget calling my dad. I was one week into my senior year of college. I had a draft number, dating myself again. They had a draft one time in this country. <laughs> All eligible young men had to sign up for the draft, and then they, and in the case of the Vietnam War, they, they pulled numbers. Mine was, my number was 63. You were deferred from going to, into service being drafted if you were in college. One week into my senior year of college, I was living, I'd moved in with a group of people. It was, they were... Now, come on, dear, don't laugh at me. It was a Christian commune. It was 30 people living in a frame house on three different floors, the girls on the top level, the guys in the basement, and we, would, we had outreach to the Oregon State University campus. We lived communally, meaning that we worked, we shared the labors, and we were all dirt poor. And I touched something of Jesus in this. I called my dad up because I believe God was saying, quit school. My dad was not a Christian at that time. And I said, Dad, I, I just feel like God is telling me I need to, to quit school. Now, I was learning to walk in the obedience of faith. It wasn't that I was inspired. I didn't want to call my dad and tell him, He'd, he'd put me through college. For him, education was, a, was a, almost an idol. 
You just didn't want to turn your back on something dad had worked so hard to get you that far, only to say, just kidding, we're not going to do this. But I did it. I moved into the, into the, into the, uh, the commune. And three and a half months later, I was drafted. And one thing, it was years later when my dad was a Christian, and I said, Dad, you remember that? And he said, oh, yeah, I remember when you called that. And I said, from that decision and going into the Army, I met my wife. I found where I was called to be in ministry. I had the finances to go back and finish school and go on to seminary, all on the basis of that one seemingly crazy decision of obedience born out of faith and there's that Kathy and I could recount other examples I don't have time tonight but suffice it to say that the that that obedience is how we embrace and live under the lordship of Jesus Christ and yes I, the the other the other time, I'm going to give you another crazy example of how the Lord will sometimes come along and exercise his authority. I was in seminary, came home from school one day, and as I was wont to do, I like to have a little snack, and we had a thing called, and this will date me again, but you've got to hear this. <laughs> Sunshine Bakers made a thing called Hydrox Cookies. This preceded Oreos. In fact, Oreos stole the recipe and screwed it up. <laughs> Hydrox went out of business, and now we are left with a poor imitation <laughs> called Oreos. But one day I came home, and I was ready. I had milk in the free ridge fridge. I had a nice three-pack you know, of Hydrox cookies, and I, was, I wasn't going to eat them all or anything. I wasn't going to hog out. It's just a snack. And as sure as I'm standing here, I felt like the Lord said, don't have any of those now. Is there sin in a Hydrox cookie? <laughs> Has milk become a banned sub, you know, substance? Uh, you know, where in the Bible do we find this kind of thing? But sometimes God just wants to say, are you sensitive enough and willing to obey me? He wasn't, he wasn't drawn a line through Hydrox cookies for the rest of my life. He wasn't saying no to milk forever. That wasn't the point at all. He wanted to see if I would be willing to obey just obey. Obedience is how we relate. It's the bottom baseline of how we relate to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. When we do this, and, I'm, and I, let me just, I just want to pray, Pastor Denell, come up and you can lead us in prayer about how, what, how we can apply this. But I just want to commend to you the challenge of beginning to use your understanding as a way of getting lift in your life, looking at adversity not just as something for God to deliver you from, but it may be Jesus may have on his coach whistle. And he's got you lined up at the 50-yard line. And he's going to run you a little bit. Not going to kill you. You'll think you're dying, but he's building something in you. He's teaching you how to obey and press through suffering in order to learn obedience. Amen? Jesus Christ is Lord. Say that with me. Jesus Christ is Lord. Amen.